Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah Ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen uh, Brothers, welcome to another Friday Night Circle Organised by Hizmet Tahrir Australia Tonight's conversation is an important one given the events in the US and the global ramifications of it. We're going to be exploring the US elections, its outcome and the implications for, on three categories, on Muslims in the US, on the wider world and on the Muslim world specifically. In the time frame that we have, inshallah, we'll delve as much as we can um, given the breadth of the conversation. I want to start by reminding us of a very simple but important principle which we all appreciate as Muslims. And that is something we acknowledge every single day. When we bow down to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we, when we testify our belief in Him subhanahu wa ta'ala, we acknowledge that there is no greater power, no greater source of authority. No one is in control of affairs in this world except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And sometimes the world moves in ways and for periods of time where this principle uh, whilst I won't say becomes questionable, but the burdens of the world weigh on us so heavily that sometimes we forget this connection, we forget this point. Um, or we start to develop um, a level of inferiority or a level of defeatism that really is unbefitting for us as Muslims. And we see that in so many aspects of our lives where Muslims bow out every day uh, to the struggle that is demanded of us as Muslims and of us as an ummah that there is no doubt it is hard it is the the path traversed by the prophets who came before us and it is a path traversed by the great by the great companions and by the great Muslim personalities before us and no doubt time and time again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us how we should center him in our conversations and of course in our perspectives of the world in one particular reference Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is from Surah Ali Amran and it's a very simple expression but it applies to so much to so much where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us the owner of power sovereignty right Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swearing by his names uh, that in rough translation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that Allah gives the power to whom He wills. And He takes it from whom He wills. And it continues that Allah honors whom He wills and He humbles who He wills. And the matter is indeed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands. And if we just reflect on this simple point, sometimes we think America is too great, that the Qufar are too strong, that they are far too advanced, that the Ummah is too defeated, that the Ummah is too backward, that the occupation in Muslim lands is too strong, that the, that the, uh, the, tight, the grasp of the rulers over us is too strong, that they rule with iron fists, that if we just want to express ourselves for a short, for a very short time, then that gets crushed immediately. And sometimes we think, really, is there a way out? Is there a moment where the Ummah really will breathe again? Where we feel that for so long we've had uh, the feet of the Qufad over our necks. And sometimes we're just not sure whether we're actually going to breathe again. And yet Allah subhanahu reminds us, don't ever forget. Don't ever lose belief. Don't ever lose confidence. Allah is the one who gives the power. And Allah is the one that takes the power. And with that, Allah honors the people and disgraces another. Humbles them. And in other verses, Allah tells us in connection to this, that often He gives power right, to the transgressor as a means of a test for the believers. That we can't have good without bad and bad without good. And if we are true to our... our our belief, if we are true to what we, uh, what we testify as Muslims, then Allah will test us. As we are tested in our personal lives, we're tested in our political lives. And if we are worthy of the honor that Allah has described us as the best nation brought forth for mankind, then we will act accordingly. And if we're not, Allah will show us who ultimately is in control. 
And in this slide, never ever forget this ayah when we, when we uh, carry this conversation. We are talking not about a deity, we're talking about a nation made up of people, humans. And what they build in institutions is just human form. As they built gods in the time of the Prophet out of dates and out of other materials, so they built the modern nation state as their modern god. But it's not a deity, it's a product of, of human effort. And as it is built, it can be destroyed. And as it has a value at one point, it can lose its value the next day. And in this context, let's have this conversation about the American elections. Where did it all, where, I mean, let's position this before we even progress. Trump came to power at a time when America's standing in the world was in freefall. And America was faced with a set of unenviable choices. None of them were good. That you had, after the fall of communism, a small window of American unilateralism, where it enjoyed supremacy, unrivaled supremacy on the global stage, and it thought to itself that this period can be extended forever. And they sought to build the new American century, and it didn't last very long. They stepped into Afghanistan, they stepped into Iraq, they went in other places, and the limit of U.S. military power, the limit of U.S. reach, was on display for the world to see. And they've been back backpedaling ever since. At that time, before Trump arrived, America's st status in the world was at an all-time low. Everyone saw the pictures of Abu Ghraib. Everyone saw what was happening in Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Everyone saw uh, or came to know of uh, America's rendition programs and so much more. Everyone saw the carpet bombing of entire cities, leveling of entire nations, and the standing of America in the eyes of the world was, uh, was, uh, treble, uh, was, was trampled. Trump come, came at a time when America was effectively bankrupt. The system which it relied on for so long of its artificial currency and, and uh, un, unending debt backed by other countries purchasing its currency, that system can't continue forever. It's a Ponzi scheme that ultimately has an expiry date. And America was very closely reaching that point and can so consistently forever expanding its debt beyond what it even recognizes as its own limits, only because it's entirely artificial in nature. But American jobs, the American economy, was not like what it was in the previous century. Capitalism ultimately had failed to deliver for the people inside America and outside of America. It secured the interests of a select few, but for the vast majority, the opposite was entirely true. At the same time, given America's freefall, we saw the emergence of rival powers, predominantly China, and Europe trying to snap back at what was previously its own. And under these conditions, America was faced with a choice. Do we persist with what America has persisted for so long? They tried with diplomacy, and under the cover of international law, it was not working for them anymore. They tried with the neocons under George W. Bush. They thought, let's just abandon the concept and let's just prepare, uh, pro, uh, project ourselves forcefully under the banner of neoconservatism. And that didn't work. America went backwards. Its occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq completely shattered America's, not just America's military reach, but uh, the American economy, uh, the American status, uh, the, the, the number of troops available to fight American wars, even the appetite, the American appetite for wars completely diminished. Do we continue, does America continue on that path or does it adopt um, a different set of tactics to move in an entirely different set of directions? And this is where Trump came in. As an outsider, who was not part of the establishment, who America, who the establishment could a portion responsibility for the hard decisions that it could not make. That America felt it was a time where what served America's interest for in, in the post-World War II era no longer served its interest. That historically international institutions like the UN, the World Health Organization, the IMF, those institutions propelled American interests. They served America's interests. 
But towards the end of it, towards the end of the century, they started to constrain America's interests. They started to, uh, they served as an obstacle to America's interests. And when you see, for instance, on, on a small scale, Trump's uh, attack on the World Health Organization because of Chinese influence, you realize this happens in so many other places. Um, and so America thought to itself, why not? Let's create a set of conditions where we can create a new international order and build new international institutions and new ways of doing things that serve our interests, just as the UN historically did, as the IMF historically did, but no longer do. And for that reason, Trump was put in power. He was not from the establishment. He was of a particular characteristic, which we are all familiar, unhinged, um, you know, speaks, speaks directly, undiplomatic, um, and operates the government like a business, unashamedly. Um, and that's exactly what they needed. Someone to bulldoze their way through um, and force change in order to create the conditions that will serve America in the next century. That was the thinking. The reality um, was something else. What was aimed was the establishment of a more authoritarian, authoritarian regime inside America. The days of freedom and liberalism that historically served uh, predominantly democratic powers and, and others um, could no longer be relied upon. And this is not unique to America. Uh, Europe is having the same existential crisis that if we persist with unabated freedoms, then Europe will lose what makes it uniquely Europe. And that's why we have uh, the whole debacle around refugees, around immigrants, around uh, the presence of Muslims inside Europe, inside America. Um, in America, it's more than that, blacks, Mexican, Latinos, and various, various other persuasions. But ultimately, striking at the fragility of what is the American um, sense of being. That needed to change. America wanted to initiate a new kind of Cold War. It was finished with the Soviet era, but it wanted to launch one with, from a, 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 wanted to launch a new type of Cold War on the Chinese front. And the thinking is, from America's perspective, that if we create the conditions for this new type of Cold War, then we give ourselves a purpose to engage internationally from the one angle. Two, obviously, it suppresses Chinese expansionary objectives. And thirdly, it puts the rest of the world, and importantly Europe, behind America in that fight. Just as the First, world, uh, the first Cold War um, allowed America to take the leadership of the world, and Europe accepted that, willingly and unwillingly, um, and was able to lead in that process. That was the thinking. Um, even the war on terror, it tried for a time after the first Cold War, it tried to launch the war on terror and use that as a mechanism to project itself globally. And it did, but for a while. And soon the smoke, uh, the smoke be uh, extinguished itself and it couldn't consistently project itself universally on the back of the war on terror. And of course America learned that other states, if America is going to do it, other states will do it too, very successfully. And France tried it in Africa, China tried it in the Asia-Pacific, um, and they all used the same pretext, but ultimately to counter America's influence. And so it could no longer continue to carry this banner, and so it wanted to create a new type of Cold War with China. That was the thinking. The reality is that Trump was a complete failure in this respect. And I'll list a couple of reasons why, why this was the case. And it's important to sort of take our mind back to all of this to appreciate what's happening with the change in this election. If that was what was aimed at by bringing Trump to power, then we measure Trump's successes on that basis. And so from this angle, although Trump carried a lot of rhetoric, hostile rhetoric against China, initiated various hostile policy measures against China, trade tariffs, um, blaming it for COVID and, and various other things, um, ultimately, China did not respond in the way that the US had hoped. China was smarter than that. China is, is, a, is, a, is a type of country where it thinks, in long, uh, thinks strategically in long term. It's not in a rush. That's the Chinese culture, and that's generally the Asian culture. And China was in a much stronger economic position uh, than America was at this time. 
and it was in no rush. And a lot of the cards were actually in Chinese hands, not in American hands, especially when it comes to currency and, and certain reserves that could hurt America. But China doesn't want a war with, with America, and America doesn't want a war with China. But chi America tried to adjust the geopolitical landscape in its favor against China. But four years later, four years later, who is stronger? China or America? Whose image has been battered around the world? Who has suffered more because of COVID? Who looks more dictatorial, ironically, uh, America or China? For allies around the world, who can they more rely on today compared to four years ago? China or America? Even in this country, Australia is, is, is shifting very quickly to develop a set of policy measures where it becomes entirely less reliant on America. Every country in the world recognizes this fact. America is withdrawing from the international stage. America is in retreat. And China, ironically, is moving in the, in the opposite direction. And so if there was the attempt to initiate a new type of Cold War with China, um, it was a complete and utter failure, which ultimately made America weaker and China stronger. In the process, Trump antagonized historical European allies with the understanding that the priorities in the world will be elsewhere and Europe will follow America where it goes. But that did not emerge. Europe is still aiming to establish, for instance, an independent uh, military force. Europe is still aiming to rival America in certain Middle Eastern countries and, and, and African countries in ways that previously was not possible for it. But they've read the situation, they've read the international situation and realized America on the descendancy and other powers on the ascendancy and they're moving strategically accordingly. So rather than Europe serving as a, uh, as a support base for America, Europe has become much more than it was previously as an obstacle to America. And this is under the four years of Trump. Trump's authoritarianism inside America has actually fractured America more, made America more divisive. You think with the, you know, our experience, for instance, in the Middle East, the idea of the strongman ruler rules with an iron fist, puts everyone in line. That's the thinking. But it hasn't worked. And there is no indication that America is moving in that direction comfortably. There is a body of support, don't get me wrong, that would love for fascism to return to America, um, old school fascism. Um, even the pretense of diversity and, and whatnot is too much for some to accept. But the fractures have only become wider and the hostility inside America have only become greater and the divisions have become wider. And you know, there is you know, one people that Trump supporters hate more than Muslims, more than blacks, more than Mexicans. And that's liberals. That's liberals in America. This left-right divide in America is so deeply ingrained, it was never, it was never um, resolved from the outset. That this idea of the north and south of America, the city and the rural, the, 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 the Bible Belt you know, on the south and, and what exists on the north, what historically took place during America's Civil War, None of those wounds have been taped over. None of those wounds have been covered. Those wounds are still in existence. Like openly. It's just because America was so successful to project itself after World War II, those differences could be uh, arranged to be settled later. But because the money is running dry and the world is shrinking and America's portion of the world is diminishing, then everyone in America is thinking, why not? Why would I not get my own share first? Why would I not look after myself first? And that's exactly what's happening in America. This idea of an American identity, this idea of an American patriot, whilst always being a figment of the imagination, has been today, after Trump, uh, more further, than the, more further than the, from the truth than it has ever been in America's history. Trump's promise of economic revivalism. You know, remember when he first came to power? And he summoned the Muslim rulers, the Saudis and the others, and they promised him hundreds of billions of dollars and over 10 years, more than a trillion dollars worth. And he paraded that to the world and said, look, I'm bringing jobs back to America. Where are those jobs? 
Where are those jobs? The people who have suffered the most under Trump are his white voter base. But because there's the element of racism, the element of patriotism, they still attach themselves to him, even though it's against their own interests. You don't magically overnight, after crafting the world on the basis of globalization and establish, building your economies on that basis and organizing your companies accordingly, you don't flick the switch and automatically say, I'm closing this down and I'm reshaping the world in my imagination and transferring everything back to America. The world doesn't function like that. Meaning America itself, ironically, has become a victim of its own capitalism. And the jobs aren't coming back to America. And they never, in any, in any meaningful way, were ever intended to come back. Trump's lack of leadership, and we've seen this devastatingly in, uh, with, with the COVID disaster, um, has been on display for everyone to see. That if the idea was to bring in Trump as this a strong um, central authoritarian figure who could impose himself on America, force the change that needs to happen, and yet his response to COVID is what? It is what it is. <laughs> and to this day, like to this day, America is, uh, is recording such um, astronomical numbers when it comes to COVID. You know, uh, just a couple of days ago, it was reported that, you know, the world has managed to get this under control by and large. We're talking about the Western world um, in, in many parts. In other countries, Japan, Asia, wherever you go, it's been managed. It hasn't been completely done away, but it's been managed. You know, in the whole period in which COVID started, I'll give you one example. Japan has recorded since March till now just over 100,000 cases in the entirety of this period. Japan, a population of about 200, 300 million people. Two days ago, America broke records that in a single day, it recorded 140,000 cases. And if you do the numbers, right, if you do the numbers, the number of people who contract COVID and the number of people who die because of it, the numbers are astronomical. And if this is in one day, and for the last weeks, if not months, they've been consistently recording such huge numbers, close to 100,000 a day. You know, in New York, in, at one point in New York, one out of three, every emergency doctor had contracted COVID. And that's the sort of leadership that Trump demonstrated. And it was a disaster. If the establishment was investing their hope in the idea of a strong man that can force change, the exact opposite happened. The result of all of this, right, is that America weakened at home, uh, was more divided, more broken, more bankrupt. America's historical allies became more hostile. Um, America's rivals became stronger. Um, and the people that America needs to rely on because it doesn't have the ability, the money or the military um, prowess to project itself um, are more unstable today. People like MBS in Saudi or Sisi in Egypt, they, they live on such fragile foundations and Trump has made their position even weaker and more fragile. He's exposed them. You remember the phrase where Trump was saying, Sisi, my, where's my favorite dictator? Do you remember that expression? They like humiliated him in front of his people, even though everyone knows he's a dictator. But to humiliate him like that gives it even less grounding. Um, for, you know, for, for a large part, he's been completely sidelined. Um, you know, Erdogan on the other side seems to be favored. What, what the, who they rely on on the other side of the world, Iran, completely sidelined today. Everyone that America needs to pro propel itself, to carry, continue to carry itself, has weakened after Trump. And this is where we are with the US elections. So for a large part, the American elections, whilst obviously has a domestic consideration, it's symbolic for what is happening on a global stage in terms of America's position. What, what has you know, the American elections revealed? The Americans has demonstrated again, not because it's a surprise, but again, that democracy is a sham. It's very, very simple. Um, how, how presidential candidates are nominated on the one front, how the electoral process plays out on the other front, the role of the judiciary and its supposed independence on the other front, it's a complete shambles. America can no way stand to the, in front of the world today and lecture anyone about democracy anymore. It shot itself in the foot. 
America can no longer stand in front of the world and lecture people about how to handle uh, political protests when they sent the National Guard to crush their own population. The notion of democracy as the best model of governance has been completely shattered under Trump. The US is more divided than ever. The role of the deep, you know, the, the, the concept of the deep state. You know, the deep state is not some monolithic entity where everyone's on the same page. It's just those who have power. It's like family rivalry. They're part of the same family, but it doesn't mean they don't fight amongst themselves. And this election has demonstrated that the deep state is as divided as the American population. And that's what I want to emphasize. And these divisions occur over a few, a few main issues. The first is America's place in the world. And again, this is an issue that has haunted America since its inception. Is America, should America be an insular state, worry about only itself internally? Or should it engage with the world, seek its riches, and accept the cost of doing so? This is a matter that has never been settled and never will be settled. And it's that, a constant tussle inside America. Should we withdraw or should we engage? And at times, depending on who is in power, they project themselves and at other times they pull the reins back. Um, the role of race, the role of religion, the role of economics and the role of institutions inside America, all of these are key contentions that are fought over by the deep state in America. As a result of all of this, America has become a joke to the world. It's emboldened its rivals, weakened its allies and has entrenched loss of trust and confidence in US institutions. Now just quickly I want to touch upon three main issues now. Given all of this and what we see with these elections, how is this going to play out first of all for Muslims in America? Now the first thing I want to say is that Muslims in America are part of the Ummah. Should never be regarded as a separate entity, as a separate category. Uh, but the reality is there are domestic considerations that are unique to American landscape and this needs to be considered. Um, what we need to consider, of course, is that whilst the evidence suggests that Joe Biden will become the next president, there's no guarantee that's going to happen either. In all likelihood it will, but anything is possible. This weekend there is a million man march organised you know, by Trump supporters. Um, they are heavily armed, heavily weaponised, they are angry and they are as as loony as, as Trump himself, no one knows how this is going to play out. When George Bush came to power, he was behind in the elections. Al Gore had won the popular vote, had won the electoral vote, and yet they went to court in Florida, if you remember the, the case, and they played the game. They played the game and demonstrated how, how shallow the concept of justice is in America. They flipped the result. You know, when the election happened, I thought to myself, you know, let's um, actually, you know, if we had the option to vote, I would say to people, vote Trump, right? Because of what Trump represents and he'll, he'll, he'll propel America on a downward spiral faster than the Democrats. That was the original thinking. And then I thought, no, 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 hold on a minute. Let's actually, let's go the other way. You know, under Trump, they got a taste of, you know, his supporter base, white, racist, um, you know, religious bigot type. They got a taste of old school fascism. And they liked it. They don't want to apologize for being white. They don't want to apologize for being racist. They don't want to apologize for putting their lives and their, their prosperity before everyone else, inside America and outside of America. And they got a taste of that and they were supported institutionally. Um, and I thought if they lose that after getting a taste of it, that will actually be a trigger for them. You don't get a taste of that and then accept for it to be taken away. You know, you develop a sense of entitlement to function that way. And I hoped after that, that Joe Biden would win just for that reason. Just for that reason. In origin, you would hope for a Trump win because, um, because of what he represents and the damage he would do to America, given the experiences of the last four years. And then I thought about it and I said, uh, actually, you know what? Um, I hope he loses because... Um, his supporter base is not the type that's going to walk away quietly. Um, and they're going to be as destructive as possible. And obviously, in the context of, in the broader context of what we want from America, that would be the best outcome. Um, and then I thought about it again. We keep changing positions. And I thought, I hope Trump loses, and I hope Biden comes. And then I, th I thought, I hope actually Trump actually wins in the end 
through the process that we're all witnessing now, just because the thirst for revenge will be even more intense. Um, and there will be a national purge across the country of all so-called um, unpatriotic, uh, you know, treacherous uh, liberals, as they describe them. Um, and these divisions in America, whether it's on racial grounds, whether it's on class and economic grounds, or, or whatever other basis, um, you know, uh, divisions over religion, the role of religion, the extent to which religion should play play a, a role in American life and society and politics, um, and, uh, you know, positions on America's engagement with the world. Um, all of these things are so deeply entrenched and it all predominantly you know, plays out with whites against whites. Right? Apart from the obvious racial considerations and the treatment of blacks and other minorities in the country, um, which obviously can't be swept under the carpet, but you know, to put it very bluntly, uh, whilst life is not easy for Muslims in America, um, for, very, for many reasons, in particular after the World War on Terror for two decades, um, if guns are going to be pointed to anyone right, in America, <laughs> they're going to be pointing it to themselves long before they get to the blacks or the Mexicans or the, or the Muslims. That, that, you, know, you know religious bigotry? When we talk about the Crusaders, when we talk about the Inquisition, when we talk about uh, the slave trade, when we talk about colonization, um, who is leading all of that? It's predominantly re uh, religious types. But who were, the, who were the farm owners and who were the owners of slaves in America? The same people that go to church every Sunday. And who provided a religious justification for it all? You know, this nexus between uh, you know, religious, religiosity and and barbarity in the, in the Western Christian experience is a very tight one. Um, and to have uh, people come who represent uh, liberalism or the worst excesses of it in terms of postmodernism, um, that's you know, a betrayal from within. That's your own people betraying you. It's different from someone coming outside and representing something foreign. This is your own people turning against you and the level of hatred of you know, right-wingers in America to liberals in America is so toxic um, that they will do away with each other long before they, they turn their attention towards any other minority group in the country. Notwithstanding, of course, there is not necessarily a limit to the level of hatred in America. It seems to be growing in abundance in that place and there's still plenty left over for, for all minorities in that country, including Muslims. But what I want to stress, irrespective if Biden comes back to power or Trump returns to power, um, the divisions in America will remain. And this is important to, to understand. And the divisions have nothing to do with Muslims. Whilst at times we are a convenient scapegoat, don't get me wrong, but it's mostly rhetorical. When John Howard came to power in this country and he had a very strong rhetoric against uh, immigration, and in particular Muslim immigration, under his leadership, Australia increased its immigration intake more than any, other, any of his predecessors. So the, po politically speaking, the rhetoric is one thing, but there are political realities, and that's, completely, that's a completely different thing. Um, so in this case, when it comes to Muslims in America specifically, um, what we need to consider first and foremost is that power is mostly distributed federally in America, like similarly to, to how it is in Australia. Um, and federal elections are relevant for certain things, um, but they have very little impact on most other things. And when it comes to the day-to-day -day life of Muslims, like we understand, um, you know, considerations of the federal government are not always at the forefront. They are not policies. They are not, you know, policies or measures that impact our lives um, most immediately. That's what happens in this country. We understand what happens on a local level, what happens on the state level. That's what impacts us daily. Now, the federal government may drive things rhetorically, it may set broad agendas, but in reality, what happens on the ground is what's happening through the local police forces, local governments, um, local education boards, things like that. And it's the exact same case in America, with obviously uh, some differences. Um, so in that case, you know, the, the change in the president is not going to change uh, the reality of what exists on the ground, in other words. That's what I'm trying to get at, get at. And the reality of what happens on the ground 
is not dictated overwhelmingly by, what's, by, who, by who is in power, who's the president of America. To give you an example, um, in one state um, where their officers, uh, the police department is famous for all the wrong reasons, um, they just, you know, on a state level, agreed to increase the police budget, even though nationally the rhetoric is something else, right? Obviously it's controlled by certain partisan forces. Um, and that's a police department that currently is under intense national spotlight because of its brutality against um, the African-American population. And it's the same police force that it was discovered had been lying to conceal evidence of over, uh, I think, 300,000 cases of um, uh, sexual, uh, you know, sexual assault cases against minors committed by who? Like not by the people of that state, by the police force. Now imagine that. And, so, and just, so just to demonstrate how there's what plays out on a national level doesn't necessarily mean it's reflected on a local level. Um, even though obviously there's a relationship between the two. Um, so in this sense what we would find if Joe Pinan comes to power, like what we see when Labor came to power in this country, you'll see an immediate calm in the rhetoric. No doubt. Because that's the nature of their politics. One is in your face, openly um, bigot, and the other is more diplomatic, um, stab you in the back kind of politics, and that's the Democrats in America. But the forces of simulation will go in overdrive in America. They're already very intense, but they go in overdrive. You know this carrot and stick approach to politics? Imagine you present to the Muslims his four years of Trump, it was almost a disaster for you, presented to us as a, some existential question for us, and now. Muslims are asked to say, Alhamdulillah, that Trump is gone now. Now we can go back to how it was, as if what was before Trump was good for Muslims. Um, and in this sense, now, you know, the Democrats will come to reap their, you know, reap their reward, reap the dividends. They've invested so much, they'll want their returns. Now, supporting Muslims um, rhetorically on a political level, given the toxic, tox, toxicity of American politics, is not a small sacrifice. Um, but they use it for political purposes and they want their dividends. And they will be asking of Muslims to, right, as Biden says, inshallah, we'll be asked to say alhamdulillah because Biden says inshallah and everything will be great again. Um, and so you will see that kind of rhetoric, but the underlying policies will remain precisely the same. If you see in some of the teams that Biden is bringing together, when it comes to justice reforms, <laughs> one of the central figures of that is the attorney that's running all of Trump's cases. Well, think about that. You know, when you talk about Biden being an establishment figure representing what has come to known as the deep state, there's very little real substantive difference between, between parties um, and the teams that he's assembling represent the entirety of what we imagine capitalism, uh, capitalist America to represent, right? And whether you um, represented the Republicans in, in one era, um, you'll very, very seamlessly represent the Democrats in another era because the interests are so intertwined. Um, even if Biden comes to power, most of the focus will be on the liberal, conservative divide in America, not on the Muslims. The reality of the black experience will still be the same, as atrocious as it is, um, and that will increase as it always does, irrespective of who is in power. Um, but uh, Muslims, you know, in the West, we need to appreciate this point. Uh, we're, we're a political football. Not, and, and we're really not much more than that. When the government wants to kick us, they'll kick us. When they don't want to kick us for whatever political purpose, they won't. When the rhetoric serves them, they'll use it. When it doesn't, they won't. They'll move on. We're a political football, meaning we have actually very little, if any, political leverage in the West. So the message is honestly, and I, I struggle to find the correct words to express this, um, like just get over yourselves a little bit. You know, like you're actually not the centre of the universe in America, as you are, like as uh, in the same case as, we, as we're not the centre of the universe in, in broadly in the West. Like we're a minority in terms of population, in terms of religion, we're even less than that when it comes to political influence. And so we need to stop believing that the whole election is about us. Um, or that we're so critical to what's happening in America that we're going to be the focus. We're not. 
never have, never will. Now, because the neocons were in power and they launched the war on terror, we became the centre of focus politically, rhetorically. But the reality on the ground is whites shooting up other whites. You know, the, the abortion clinics being bombed to smithereens, people shooting up at schools. Um, what are their grievances? They're not anti-Muslim grievances. They're grieving, grievances against liberal, liberal ideology and people who represent that. Um, when Timothy McVeigh, you know, did what he did in Oklahoma, it was not in his mind, you know, he had a problem with uh, Muslim presence. His problem was with other white people, liberals, um, and, and various other considerations, right? So in this sense, whilst we can never undermine the seriousness of what's transpiring and the propensity for things to emerge in ways that no one could imagine, um, at the same time, we shouldn't overinflate that either, right? For the majority of us, and we know, look, we know this from our own experiences under John Howard and the war, that period of the war on terror, whilst rhetorically things were very intense, were we not getting on with our lives for the large part? Yeah, they disrupted the community violently. And yes, a lot of us were, were offered as sacrificial lambs to serve a political purpose. But by and large, um, did we not get on with our lives? The only difference was the level of anxiety that we carried because we accepted for the rhetoric to enter our own mindset as if that's some normative position. And so there's a sort of a need to recalibrate um, our perception of our role and presence um, in Western lands. What does it mean? So beyond that, what does it mean for the world? And I wanted to make this point before I mention the Muslim world specifically. Right? Um, irrespective of who comes back to power, America is going to be busy domestically. It's burdened by what it's facing inside America. Right? The economic crisis... Um, you know, the, the lack of jobs, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of health care. Um, you know, when you read the figures, sometimes, you know, when you, certain numbers, when they get to a certain magnitude, they stop, to have that, like, they stop having an actual meaning. It's just too big to fathom. And so when you say, for instance, on any given day, 40 or so million Americans are living below the poverty line. I don't have access to food, shelter, um, health care, anything like that. Imagine that. A country of 300 or whatever million people it is now, at any given point in time, like 40 or so million, uh, give or take, are under the poverty line. Right? And anyone that's gone to America will come back and tell you how pervasive poverty is in America, um, but it's just covered so much. But it's in your face once you're there. But beyond that, those who live uh, day to day, um, week to week, paycheck to paycheck, that if one paycheck um, was not available to them, they would fall under the poverty line. That is in the order of approximately 100 million Americans. They are like that. And imagine you govern a country whose conditions are like that. People are living mouth to, mouth to stomach on a daily basis. Um, you are going to be preoccupied whether you like it or not. Um, with those realities, especially because they exploded under Trump so, so, um, um, so astoundingly with the race riots, which ultimately represent more than just the racial riots, represent everything that's wrong with America. Uh, that's what it's come to represent. We're going to see, irrespectively of who comes to power, a continued erosion of US global leadership. It's already in tatters. Ideologically, the shine's been completely removed, and the moral the, the moral force with which America historically carried itself around the world is no longer there. You cannot send the National Guard to crush protesters in America and then stand in front of the world and expect to be taken seriously when it comes to spreading democracy, human rights, anything like that. And to tell you the point, to, to re-emphasize the point, America is no longer interested in that anyway. And for this reason, everyone around the world is doing what they can to secure their own interests first. It's a massive scramble at the moment. Um, there is no capacity for America to launch any new wars anytime soon, whether Trump comes to back to power or Biden comes to power. Everything we see in, uh, towards the end of the Obama period and then the Trump era, America's relying almost entirely on proxies 
on other countries. We've seen it in Syria, we've seen it in, in Iraq, we've seen it in Libya, we've seen it in other places. America does not have the capacity, doesn't have the finances, doesn't have the, uh, the military reach to extend itself to a new war. It's been completely eaten from within uh, through the existing wars. And every effort is being made to find a way for America to withdraw from existing conflict zones, but in a way that saves face for America. We saw that with um, negotiations in Afghanistan with the Taliban, which historically it sought, you know, it pronounced that it would never negotiate with, aims to completely destroy, and now it's on the complete other, other end of the spectrum. Um, it will be completely more reliant on its allies. Um, we're going to see, irrespective of what happens or who comes back to power, uh, America's rivals, and this is predominantly China, um, and, in, and in some places Europe, um, even in some cases um, India, even though it's, serve, it's, it's aiming to serve American purposes in that region by confronting China on its behalf. Um, you know, Australia, you know, you notice, you know, who launched in this country, um, you know, a, a bid to get uh, Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation um, subject to a royal commission in this country. You know, it was Kevin Rudd who launched that recently. And you know who supported that immediately? was another former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. And you notice both those Prime Ministers were burnt and replaced while they were still in government. Do you think that's a coincidence? That even in this country when um, Prime Ministers and governments of this country recognise the shift in geodynamics um, around the world, and especially in Australia's case, the Asia-Pacific, and wants to tip itself ever so slightly more towards China, and away from America, it's that coincidentally the Australian Prime Minister is constantly replaced, is booted out of government. You know, they can't be a coincidence every time. And Kevin Rudd was famous for that. Remember, our only Chinese-speaking Prime Minister. Um, and Malcolm Turnbull was, uh, was renowned for that because he was an economic pragmatist and he was putting Australia's economic interests first and that lied with the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, the international institutions that America built, again, irrespective of who comes to power, America has already decided and no longer wants them. So, you know, you know, for the last how many years, think about it, who's heard anything from the UN? Like, when was the last time anyone heard anything from the UN that they can remember? On any major conflict piece, in, because it no longer serves America's interests. That's just too great a burden for it to carry. And obviously, the way it's constructed is that it can be exploited by other powers, not just America, if the conditions are right for those countries, and that's exactly what's happening. Um, and so it's all um, effectively abandoned those institutions. It's withdrawn its funding from the World Health Organization, it's cut its budget for the United Nations, um, and it's effectively destroying those institutions, but with the idea to rebuild something else, even though it doesn't know what that something else at this point looks like. Um, and so, you know, where historically the emphasis was on um, globalization and global cooperation and the absence of US leadership and the absence of an alternative to step in to play that role there will be more global instability because there will be no uh, no country or block of countries that can impose themselves on the rest of the world you will see the rise of bilateral and multilateral regional cooperation but not global cooperation um, and in that sense uh, the threat of global instability will be very strong and be very intense in the, in the coming years because of the absence of an international order that, will, that could regulate that. In terms of the Muslim world specifically, given all of that, um, if the Democrats come back to power, clearly what we're going to see is more diplomacy, less military. Um, in your face military, of course. We will see more proxy wars um, because it's not as if America can just conveniently excise itself from that part of the world. Um, we saw, as we're going to see, as we saw during the Obama era, a gradual withdrawing of US forces in existing conflict zones. That process will continue. Um, Trump tried um, to continue that policy, but it's enormously difficult given the strategic ramifications of that. Um, America will rely on a lot of the Muslim rulers, as we see, right? Whether it's direct military. Uh, reliance or whether it's the funding of American um, intervention in, in various places. 
but America has rattled the domestic condition of many of the Middle Eastern rulers, many of the Muslim rulers, that they emerge after Trump in a much weaker position because of how forcefully they've, um, he's exposed them. When you drag a people in the way that he did immediately, when you drag, you remember that, that, that uh, seminal image around the globe and he deliberately sent it to the world that he's at the center of the universe and these are his, what's the polite word? Anyway, we'll say puppets, right? We'll keep it PG. Um, were surrounding him and parading them like idiots in front of their own people and in front of the whole world in that way. Now, again, given what Trump was supposed to represent, it was expected. Um, and for America, it's now or never. You don't just sit idly by and, and hope to shape the world in a particular way, given everything is working against you. You've got to force it. And if you don't now, someone else will get the ascendancy and force it for you. And he needed to make that break. But the cost of that um, is the irreparable damage done to the, to the thrones of those rulers in the Middle East. And so while, ironically, America will rel has to rely more on them, they are less capable than they have ever been to serve America's interests. And when you bring the two together, you can imagine, of course, the sorts of vacuum that can emerge very quickly in that part of the world. Um, we'll also see in the Muslim world um, European advances, which means, um, unfortunately, as we saw in Beirut, um, much more instability, more conflict, um, given that they are resting or fighting for control over the, that part of the world. Um, this is the reality of what has been transpiring for America for a long time. This is what the Trump presidency represents, and this is where things are going, irrespective of whether Biden comes, back, comes to power or Trump returns to power. Um, the only difference is um, how quickly these events play out. The trajectory in which America is positioned currently is irreversible, and the only difference is the time it takes in order to reach its inevitable demise, given the way in which the world is changing, insha'Allah. I'll, I'll stop here uh, at this point, and we'll open the floor for questions and answers, insha'Allah. Jazakallah khairan. Um, to, our, uh, to our audience listening, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi.